Hey, everybody. Merry Christmas. Today, we are going to talk about the second candle in the Advent wreath. Last time we talked about hope, this whole idea of this messianic hope that the Israelites in the Old Testament had and, of course, was fulfilled in Jesus himself. That's why we celebrate Christmas. Today, we light the second candle, and this one represents peace. This is one of those words that you will see in your Christmas decorations in the kitchen or in the living room. Christmas brings to mind this theme of peace, but here's the irony. It's one of the most stressful times of the year, isn't it? We're supposed to have peace at Christmas time, but then we have to hang out with the in-laws? I remember in the early days of marriage when our kids were little, we would fly home for Christmas every year. My parents lived in the Chicago area. Tracy's parents lived in the same area. Our brothers and sisters lived in those area, in that area. And so it was always so stressful if we were home for four or five days. We're just jumping between homes. It was by the time we got back on the plane to head home with, by the way, far more luggage than when we started, which was stressful also. We we were so done with it. Peace peace was the last thing on our minds when we thought about Christmas. In today's lesson, we're going to explore this concept. The word in Hebrew is shalom. You've probably heard that word before. That's the word whenever we read peace in the Old Testament, that's the word that is being translated. We ended last time with Isaiah chapter 9 verses 6 to 7. It says, "For a child is born to us, a son is given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So we covered those first three briefly last time. Go back and listen to that if you missed it. Today, we're going to focus in on that last moniker, Prince of Peace. In fact, this is the first of Isaiah's 25 references to Shalom, Prince of Shalom. If you remember from last time, we gave some context to these messianic prophecies of hope in Isaiah, Isaiah 7, 14, Isaiah 9. Both of these passages are referring to, in at least in part, this immediate context where King Ahaz, the king of Judah, wanted to form an alliance with some pagan nations because there were enemies attacking from the north. He was freaking out, and Isaiah the prophet comes to him, and he calls him to trust in God, that God would protect the nation of Judah from its enemies, and he would give this sign. Of course, last week we talked about the sign was this uh, virgin would give birth to a child. Again, this was a prophecy that was not just fulfilled in Jesus, fully fulfilled in Jesus, but it was it was partially fulfilled, probably, many commentators believe, in Isaiah's day. Because sure enough, God did rescue Judah from those attacking enemies from the north. Ahaz didn't have to form an alliance with a pagan nation. God was going to do all the rescuing. So that is what was happening in the immediate context about 800 years before Christ was born. But of course, this prophecy is about more than just that. So if you were a Jewish reader in the Old Testament, reading Isaiah 9, you're probably thinking about peace, meaning that war would cease, that enemies would be defeated, because just about every time you saw that word shalom in the Old Testament, you'd be tempted to think that that's what they're talking about. But actually, the original meaning of shalom is much bigger than 
the absence of conflict or wars ceasing, the word shalom means to make things whole or to make things complete, to restore something, to heal something that was broken. So today when we're talking about shalom, when we're talking about peace, I don't want you to think so much about wars and conflicts. I think it's better to think about reconciliation. It's better to think about being made whole. And this is such a great theme with the holidays coming up. You're about to spend some time with you know, the in-laws again or some friends or whatever. And for whatever reason, I think Christmas can really trigger a lot of people because it's supposed to be peaceful, but it's not. And today, as we jump into the text, I want to talk about three types of shalom, three types of wholeness, of completeness, of reconciliation, of peace. And the first one is is the starting point for wholeness in every other area of our lives. The first one is to have shalom with God, to have peace with God. This kind of shalom happens not in the physical realm, it happens in the spiritual realm. So what we learn from the gospel, what we learn from the Bible, is that God makes peace with us through the person and work of the Prince of Peace. I mean, ultimately, that's what Isaiah 9 is referring to. It's not talking about peace that would come to Judah in Isaiah's day. It's about peace that would come to every one of us, Jew and Gentile, anyone who would trust Jesus for salvation. Now, for those of you who are listening who are newer to the Bible or newer to Christianity, you might throw a flag at what I'm saying right now. You might say, wait a second, why do I need peace with God? I feel like I'm at peace with God. I, you know, God loves me. I'm a good person. We're all good people because that's what the world would tell us. That's what culture says. Culture says that everyone's basically good and and we, you know, we're all God's children, that kind of stuff. But if you spend any time at all in the Bible, you'll learn pretty quickly that our natural state is not shalom with God. Instead, the Bible says that we're enemies with God. The Bible doesn't say that we're children of God. The Bible says we're children of wrath. The Bible says that we're, instead of shalom, the Bible says that we're broken, we're not whole, that we're incomplete, not complete, that we need this this word that we're going to be talking a lot about today, we need reconciliation with God. We are not right with God by nature. You know, maybe a good way to understand this is, is in the context of a marriage. I don't know, men, for any of the men or husbands who are listening, maybe you, you know, woke up one day and you're interacting with your wife in the morning, having coffee or whatever, and something just feels a little bit off. You know what I'm talking about? It seems like maybe, maybe your wife is mad at you, that that you guys are not reconciled, that you must have said something the night before and you didn't realize what it was. And so, so now you're having to kind of tiptoe around and say, wait, are we okay? Is everything okay right now? And now I'm lucky that I have a wife who is honest with me about this sort of thing, and she'll just come right out and tell me. But I know a lot, of, a lot of guys, and it's not just a girl thing, by the way. A lot of guys are married to women like this. Maybe a lot of women are married to men like this, where you don't just come out and say it, but you kind of punish your spouse a little bit. You make them feel the pain for a little while. And that's the worst. When you don't know what's wrong, but you know that there's something wrong. Does that make sense? I actually remember early on in our marriage, 
one time I woke up, Tracy was was upset with me for something. And I said, what's wrong? And she said I had done something to her in her dream. And I said, well, that's not the real me. You can't hold me accountable for something that dream Brian did to you. But some of you maybe can relate to this. And, and so this really is the idea of, of the need for reconciliation, that this is our natural state with God. We, and it's not that God's being petty with us, but the Bible says that we've all offended a holy God. The Bible says that we're all born into sin. The Bible says that God is holy and we're not, that God is righteous and we're not. And so the, the natural state of the relationship between you and God is, it's in trouble. It's in big trouble and something, something needs to give, right? You need to be reconciled to God. And, and that's what this whole concept of Prince of Peace is really talking about in Isaiah 9, verse 6. And I think it's really cool what verse 7 says. I want you to hear this, and I'm going to try to explain this to you in the context of the New Testament. It says in verse 7, his government and its peace will never end. The passionate commitment of the Lord will make this happen. Now, again, if you're reading this in Isaiah's day as a Jewish person living in Judah, you're thinking that Isaiah is talking about an earthly king, this person who's going to establish peace that we're not going to have we're not going to have wars anymore and and you're thinking that that's what this prophecy is about. But in retrospect with with the benefit of hindsight as we read the New Testament, we understand that his government and its peace is not talking about an earthly king, it's talking about Jesus who would come not to set up an earthly kingdom, but he would come to rule in our hearts. I mean, Jesus used that language a lot. He says the kingdom of heaven is near. And in part, what that meant was that he was going to set up his rule in our hearts, that it was a spiritual thing. And this is the coolest thing about it, is it wasn't going to be dependent on you and me and our good works and our ability to make up for the bad things that we did like in a marriage fight but the operative force in this whole reconciliation mission is the passionate commitment of the lord that that's going to make this happen and now I'll explain that a little bit more in a second but first let me let me let me tie this into something we studied a few months ago if you've been listening to the podcast where we did the series on biblical eschatology Bible Knowledge Commentary says this, apparently Isaiah assumed that the messianic child would establish his reign in one advent, in his first coming, that when the child grew up, he would rule in triumph. But like the other prophets, Isaiah wasn't aware of the great time gap between the Messiah's two advents. In other words, the, you know, in retrospect, we know that Jesus came two thousand years ago, and but we're still waiting for him to come again to set up his 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 millennial kingdom. Isaiah, the prophet, and all the other prophets would have had no idea that there was going to be this such a long gap between the first coming of the Messiah and the second coming of the Messiah. Again, the first com- coming introduced the the reign. God's reign in our hearts through Christ, the spiritual reign that he has for every believer who who puts their faith in Christ, sort of the invisible church, I guess you could call it. That was what Jesus's first advent does. I'll explain how you can be a part of that if you don't know in just a minute. But this 
the second advent, the second coming of Christ is yet to come. And the Bible says that he's going to set up a millennial reign. And then all this kingdom language from Isaiah is going to be ultimately fulfilled in those things as well. And so we have these, we have these two, we almost three fulfillments because we have the fulfillment in Isaiah's day um, where, you know, again, Judah was spared in that difficult time when, when, uh, when the, enemies from the north were attacking, but then you've got the coming of Christ to set up a kingdom, a spiritual kingdom in our hearts that we can be a part of, and someday we're waiting for Jesus to come back and actually set up a kingdom, um, the millennial kingdom that we're going to get to be a part of. So again, I know that's a lot of information, but hopefully you've been tuning into the podcast and, and you're clued into all that language. But here's the thing. The prophets, Isaiah and the other prophets, they knew that God was up to something, but they didn't quite know the details. We have to remember that. They're writing these prophecies down, inspired by the Holy Spirit to write these things, and, and they, don't, they don't know that this is going to be God himself, that Jesus would be God himself. And so if we skip on to Isaiah 53, look at what it says in verse 2. It says, my servant, talking about this Messiah, grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender shoot, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. And then verse five says this, but he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. So these passages are talking once again about a Messiah who is going to come, but this this I'm sure made no sense to Isaiah as he's writing this because like he's like, wait a second, I thought he was mighty God. I thought he was going to be this great ruler. Why is he getting beaten? Why is he being pierced? Why is he being whipped? And here's why. Again, we understand this because the New Testament makes this so clear to us. Everything communicated here is talking about the, the Messiah's role in establishing a kingdom, a spiritual kingdom that we can be a part of that is all his doing, and it's not our doing. Peter writes about it like this in the New Testament, 1 Peter 1, verses 10 to 11. It says, this salvation, that's another word for this, the kingdom that God is setting up that we get to be a part of by faith, it's called salvation. This salvation was something even the prophets wanted to know more about when they prophesied about this gracious salvation prepared for you. Peter's talking about passages like the one I just read from Isaiah 53. He goes on in verse 11 and he says this, they wondered, the prophets did, they wondered what time or situation the spirit of Christ within them was talking about when he told them in advance about Christ's suffering in this great glory afterward. So I love it that Peter is, in retrospect, he's interpreting verses like Isaiah 53.2 and 53.5 and many more like it. And he's saying, look, they didn't know when this was all going to happen, but it's happened in our time. Jesus, it turns out Jesus came, Jesus went to the, here's what God's plan was. Jesus came, he went to the cross, he died on the cross for our sins, and that was the pathway to salvation. That's what Isaiah 53, 5 is talking about. That's the real shalom that we can have with God. Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. Look at those words. So we could be made right, that, that is shalom. Being made right with God, being reconciled 
with God, knowing that there's a wall of hostility like like husbands sometimes have with their wives, but it's even worse than that. There's this wall of hostility up between us and God. There's something not right, and we need to be restored to a relationship with God. And how is it going to happen? This is what Paul is saying. This is what Isaiah is saying. This is what Peter is saying. It happens because of the passionate commitment of the Lord. It doesn't happen because of your passionate commitment or mine. You know, a lot of religions teach that really actually almost every other world religion besides Christianity teaches that that religion is about you clawing your way to God, you doing something, your commitment, your religiosity, your works, that that's what's going to make the difference for you. But but the Bible from start to finish says, no, actually what's going to make the difference, the peace that we can experience with God is the result of God's passionate commitment. It's a, it's a result of God himself coming to the earth through the incarnation, the Prince of Peace. He comes to the earth to bring shalom to us, and he does all of the work, and we're just simply recipients of it. So this kind of shalom happens in the spiritual realm. God makes peace with us through the person and work of Jesus, the Prince of Peace. Now, if you want to learn more about this, if you're listening to this podcast and you're new to this and you've you've never you've never made peace with God before, you haven't trusted Jesus for salvation, you haven't come to him and said, I need this, I want this, what you did on the cross for me, I want to encourage you to go to our website, pursuegod.org, go find the Pursuit series there, that's our flagship series that describes the basics of Christianity, and we talk about how you can be reconciled to God. We talk about that in lessons four, five, and six of that series, and I encourage you to find a Christian friend and say, would you go through this series with me and help me get to this place where I can have peace with God? Now, that is what I'm going to call today the first level of shalom, and it's the starting point for shalom, or remember, shalom is wholeness. So peace with God is a starting point for wholeness in every other area of our lives, and that's, that means it's, it's going to open the door to the second level of shalom, which is what we're going to call today just simply inner peace. And Romans 8.1 is one of my favorite verses that describes this inner peace. It says this, so now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. Now, look, I've been a pastor for over 20 years, and I've lost count of the number of people who walk through the doors at our church and feel this sense of condemnation and guilt because everyone has skeletons in the closet. There is so much shame and dysfunction in our world, and it starts right inside every single one of us. I mean, some of you might have a guiltier conscience than others, but we all get it. We all know it. Everyone knows that we're not perfect. We all have things that we wish nobody would know about. We hope that nobody finds out about. And that's why I think this promise from God's word is so powerful. I'll read the verse again, Romans 8, 1. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. Here's what that means. The moment you put your faith in Christ, the moment you trusted Jesus for salvation, the Bible says that your sins, past, present, even future sins, that those sins are now nailed to the cross and God doesn't hold those over your head anymore. I mean, do, do you have a friend, do you know somebody that does that, that, that holds, 
holds your mistakes over your head. Like the, they just don't, they never forget it. They never let you off the hook for that. I mean, that's such a, that's such a terrible kind of relationship to be in. Maybe some of you are in relationships like that and you know how toxic that can be. A lot of people think that's how God treats us. A lot of people believe that God is just like that, that he holds our sins over our head. He can't wait to zap us for our sins. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says there's no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus because Jesus set us free from all of that stuff. So look, here's the thing. When God forgives you, you'd be foolish not to forgive yourself. The highest authority in the universe has said that your sins are paid for. Your sins are taken care of. Now, again, it doesn't mean you're perfect on earth. It doesn't mean you, you're not going to still sin and, and mess up here on earth. But in the court of heaven, the gavel has fallen, and, and God has said that you are justified, that, you are, that you're off the hook. Jesus took your place. Jesus paid the penalty already, and you're off the hook. You know, some people think that that's too good to be true. Some people believe that that's, you know, there's no way that that could be what the Bible says. That's exactly what the Bible says. That's what the Bible teaches. So see this shalom that we have with God, this wholeness, this completeness, this reconciliation that is a result of God's passionate commitment. It's a result of Jesus's work on the cross. It's not a result of our works. So therefore, our failure to do works can't take it away. Our, even our even our um, even our future sins can't take it away. Like it's paid for. Our condemnation died with Jesus on the cross. Man, that that should that should make you want to know Jesus. That sets us free. Now the the que- next question is: So what's my part? Because I a lot of people know that in their head but they have a hard time converting that into their feelings. They still have a guilty conscience. They still feel shame. They still feel condemnation. So I want to go back to Isaiah chapter 26, verse 3, and I want to read another, another one of these 25 you know, appearances of the word peace in Isaiah. It says this, you will keep in perfect peace. This is like a prayer to God. God, you will keep in perfect peace all who trust in you, all whose thoughts are fixed on you. Now, this is really cool. Focus in on, on those words, perfect peace. Another, another translation is complete peace. Well, what is, what's the word for complete? It's shalom. What's the word for peace? Shalom. So actually in Hebrew, this reads, Isaiah 26, 3 reads, you will keep in shalom, shalom, all who trust in you. In other words, God is going to give you this perfect, complete peace based on what? Two things. Number one, you need to trust in him, right? So it's his work. When we trust in, when we trust in the work of Christ, instead of trying to earn it for ourselves, trying to be good enough for God, you never will. You can stop trying to be good enough for God. So he's going to keep in perfect peace whoever trusts in him. Boy, that's a hard thing for some people to do is just stop working and just trust. Just pin all of your hope, all of your trust on the finished work of Jesus. He's the one who already did the work. Okay, so that's the first part. But look at the second part of this verse. It says, all whose thoughts are fixed on you. Now, that's something that we can control a little bit, right? 
Because isn't it true that that for those of us who have struggled with maybe a lack of peace in in our lives, the reason I think is because of where we're fixing our thoughts. I know for me, if a couple of years ago, I struggled with some anxiety and some panic attacks. It was crazy. I'd never experienced anything like it before in my life. And I was really trying to understand what is going on here. But here were the symptoms. My mind was running. I had a hard time sleeping. I couldn't quiet my mind. I was ruminating all the time. I was just over and over playing these things in my mind. I, I know so many other men who have done, who have had the same experience where you know, it's hard for us to fix our mind on good things. For me, it it uh, surfaces through claustrophobia. Man, sometimes I remember one time I was in a plane and I felt so claustrophobic, and I had to, I had to like somehow capture these thoughts so that yeah, I didn't jump out of my skin sitting on the plane there. Man, it was crazy. It was all in my mind. None of it was real around me. It was all in my mind. What was I doing? I was fixing my thoughts on negative things. I was fixing my thoughts on um, fears and anxieties and insecurities and things that weren't even true. They weren't even true. But that's where my thoughts were focused when when I was experiencing that claustrophobia. So let me read this verse again. It says, you will keep in perfect peace all who trust in you, all whose thoughts are fixed on you. So there's the key. If you want inner peace, then you need to fix your thoughts on what God says instead of what guilt says. Every time that guilt or shame or condemnation from those skeletons in your closet, every time that rears its ugly head in your mind, here's what this passage is saying, Isaiah 26, 3, you need to fix your thoughts on God. So, so practically, on a practical level, maybe it's important for you to get some scripture verses that speak the truth to that situation where you struggle. Like maybe Romans 8, 1, there's no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. Fix your mind on the truth rather than believing the lie that you're focused on. You know, Jesus even did this in the wilderness when Satan tempted him in the wilderness. He kept throwing these lies and half-truths at Jesus. And you know what Jesus did every time? He came back with the word of God. He came back and he quoted scripture. So one of the best ways to fix your thoughts on what God says instead of what guilt says is to start memorizing some scripture. And here's another one you could add to your list, Philippians 4, verses 8 and 9. Paul says this, And now, dear brothers, one final thing. Fix your thoughts, there it is again, fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Keep putting into practice all you learned and received from me, everything you heard from me and saw me doing. And here's a payoff, verse nine, then the God of peace will be with you. Then the God of shalom will be with you. When? When you fix your thoughts on God's truth, on what's right and true, rather than allowing your mind to ruminate on all of these things that are not true, that's screwing up your inner peace, that's not allowing you to experience the freedom that that God wants to give you. 
Okay, so level one shalom is peace with God. Level two shalom is inner peace, peace with yourself. And all of this then leads to the thing that is kind of on the table with Christmas right around the corner. And this is peace with others. You know, life is complex and stressful, right? It just is. And it seems to get more stressful at Christmas, not less. And so here's here's my challenge to you. If you have peace with God, if you have really understood the forgiveness that he offers you and therefore the peace that you can have, you can forgive yourself now, my challenge to you is to be a peacemaker this Christmas. My challenge to you now is to extend that shalom, extend that that forgiveness, extend that reconcil that heart of reconciliation to the people around you. Proverbs 16:7 says when people's lives please the Lord, that should be us, right, as Christians. When people's lives please the Lord, even their enemies are at peace with them. You know, maybe you're going to spend Christmas or at least part of it with an enemy, someone that you have a hard time being around, someone who puts you on edge. Look, I want to read this verse again and I want you to apply this verse to that particular situation. When people's lives please the Lord, even their enemies are at peace with them. Friend, you need to be a peacemaker this Christmas. Paul says it like this, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 19 and 20. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them, And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. There's that peace word again. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. Here's how God wants to bring shalom into your world this Christmas. He wants to do it through you. He wants to do it through you. You know, maybe there are going to be some people that you're going to interact with this month at home or at work or wherever who are not followers of God. And so what Paul is saying in this passage is we should be all about helping them reconcile with God, helping them experience the shalom of God, the first level of shalom, the one that starts all these things off. But how how can you point them to the shalom of God, to the forgiveness and graciousness and love and kindness and reconciliation? How can you point them to that in God when you don't even embody that in your relationship with those people? God's people should be the best peacemakers in the world. Christians should be the ones who are above it all. We should be the ones who are not being pulled down into the the petty squabbles of holiday and in-laws and all that stuff. Like, We should be the most gracious, loving, forgiving people in the whole world because we are people of peace. God has interacted with us like this. God has extended his shalom to us. He's reconciled us. And so we're we're secure now. You know, we're not insecure anymore because of our sins because he's taken care of it. You know, secure people are the best people to be around. It's your insecurity that causes you to have 
such a rocky relationship with people in your world. I mean, really think about that. So if you if you truly let it sink in that God has made peace with you, and so there's no condemnation for you, you can now interact with other people as a forgiven person. And forgiven people are the ones who forgive others. You know, I, it, it breaks my heart when I, when I hear about Christians who harbor bitterness toward family members or whatever, people at work, it breaks my heart to hear that. Now, look, I get it. I understand that you have a reason to be resentful and bitter. I get it. I'm not saying that those people haven't hurt you. I'm not saying they haven't sinned against you. I get it. I'm going to concede you that. But here's the thing. We've hurt God, and we've sinned against God, and he extended an offer of reconciliation to us. It was a passionate commitment of the Lord that made it happen. And his intention then is to have all of his followers who've, who've taken him up on that offer, his intention is that, that that is what we reflect to the world around us. So yeah, you were hurt. Yes, somebody did really wound you. Somebody did really sin against you. Guess what? God's word says to forgive. Now, it doesn't say, by the way, it doesn't say to let them walk all over you. I'm not saying that. You might still need to set up some boundaries. But, but you should embody the forgiveness of Christ to the people around you. And I think that's what Paul's saying in this passage. I'll read it again. That he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. So what we're, what we're showing the world as followers of Jesus, we're, we're showing the world that, that we have level one shalom, peace with God. We have level two shalom, peace within ourselves. And therefore, that's why, that's why we can offer this same shalom, this wholeness, this reconciliation, this peace. We can offer it to the world around us. So this Christmas, when you're looking around the kitchen or the living room and you see that decoration, maybe the ornament on the tree that says peace, remember that the word in Hebrew is shalom. And it's not just the absence of conflict, it's the presence of wholeness in all of our relationships, in all of our life. And it entered the world through Jesus. That's what Advent and the second candle of Advent is all about.